And the thing is, if you asked an American, if you said, look, I put it to you, do you want to be part of a transnational superstate, which you don't understand, run by people you don't know and who you didn't elect and who you can't get rid of, but who have the power to impose on you laws that you haven't discussed and have little or no realistic power to block or rescind, was that a good idea? I mean, they would they'd reach for their guns. <laughs> Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Martin Durkin. Martin is a filmmaker, he's a film producer and a film director. He has been referred to as the Michael Moore of the right, which I think is a little unfair, but we can talk about that later on. His films always cause controversy and discussion. They include Against Nature, a 1997 Channel 4 documentary that caused Greens to go into complete moral meltdown with its questioning of environmentalism and its suggestion that environmentalism might not actually be a wonderful thing. There is also The Rise and Fall of GM, a pro-genetic modification documentary. There's The Great Global Warming Swindle from 2007, which has been described as being as close to propaganda as anything since World War II. There's the wonderfully titled Margaret Thatcher, Death of a Revolutionary, which I have a few questions about. And of course, there is Brexit, the movie which was crowdfunded and released shortly before the EU referendum in 2016. A Huffington Post review of the film said, Could this film convince people to vote leave on 23rd of June? Yes, I do believe it could. Martin has been referred to as a scourge of the Greens, a professional bullshitter and a shameless libertarian. So he sounds like a Spike's kind of guy. Martin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Brandon. I want to start by talking about Brexit, an issue that is close to both of our hearts. And particularly, I want to start by asking you, in the political and media classes narrative, Brexit is presented pretty much as a far right cry. Or uh, we hear the phrase Tory Brexit all the time. We we are told that it's an aristocratic achievement. This is the kind of, this is the screech of the old elite. I think that you see it a bit differently to that. How would you describe Brexit in the round? Well, I think that the analysis is uh, going in through the kind of class way. I think it is really interesting because it doesn't fit in neatly with our old analyses of what the working class should be and what the upper classes are. And, and which class is for Brexit and which class is against Brexit. For me, it feels like there's a there's a whole social class missing from the debate. Mm. The Brexit class, if you like. Who is this <laughs> class? And it, it almost reminds me actually of looking at those anti-climate demos. You know, on sort of Blackheath, they have those, they, have their, they put their tents down and they get ready to have their anti-capitalist march on the city. And I remember thinking ages ago, this brings in the Greens a bit, who are these people who are mm. so against capitalism? And they're interviewed on the telly, and they're all very posh. 
And they're, I think, where are the muscle-bound proletarians in all this? Where are the kind of bus drivers and the mm. steel workers and the stevedores and all this? They're obviously not there. This is not, whatever anti-capitalism this is, is not anti-capitalism of the working masses. Yeah. But it's hard to say they're middle class too, because there's an, an important section of the middle class that isn't there either. The commercial middle classes, you don't get your estate agents and your plumbers from Essex and those sorts of people. Those people are actually commercial and part of capitalism and they have no gripe with it. What you have there is, loosely speaking, the intelligentsia. And we don't like talking about the intelligentsia for the most part in Britain and America because it makes us, you know, it sticks in the craw, the idea that there is a group of people in society who will do the thinking on, on behalf of the rest of us. They feel much more comfortable in Europe, but then they've got a tradition in Europe of having a class of intellectuals who have power and do the thinking and regulating on behalf of everybody else. And it's this intellectual class, I think, that forms the, if you like, the Brexit class. Um, and they define themselves against the market in many ways. You know, there are, you know, the market's pretty vulgar and commercial mm -hmm. and yucky. So your intelligence here, members of your intelligence here, they won't be starting little firm making double glazing or anything like that, you know, <laughs> taxi firm. They wouldn't do anything muddy and horrible. They're above all that. And a large part of them derive their income and their power from the state. They're in jobs that are paid directly or indirectly by the state um, and they are jobs which are indirectly or directly related to regulation and planning and organising. So they feed off. Reg regulation is their job and so they see regulation as a good thing and that is regulation of the rest of us because they see themselves as above us. Um, and they are very snotty about people who have St George flags outside of their houses and who drive white vans and engage in that sort of world. They see the kind of free world beyond the reach of their organisations and their jobs as messy and anarchic and in need of ordering by them. And for them, the EU was their project. I mean, the EU was, you know, this vast regulating body made up of people like them who have very nice incomes and who are largely beyond accountability from the ordinary masses, whose job is to look after the masses, to look over them, to regulate them and so on and so forth. And I think for an awful lot of people, obviously that's a, a slightly my, my kind of pervy post-Marxist class analysis and most <laughs> people on the street won't, won't engage, probably won't articulate it in quite those terms, but intuitively they know mm. that there are certain people who like reading Byron and who have degrees in French literature that look down on them mm. and define themselves as distinct from them. And that is a kind of class struggle, if you will, that Brexit exposes. It's just that we haven't properly identified that Brexit class yet. Absolutely. Like you, I, I find myself uncomfortable. Well, like many people, I'm uncomfortable with the word intelligentsia or, or even more so with the phrase liberal intelligentsia because I always find myself thinking, well, they're not very liberal and they're not yeah. very intelligent. Not so it kind of doesn't match yeah, particularly idiots. well. All they're all idiots the and illiberal. But I think that's a very good description of where we're at. And I think one of the things that struck me most over the past two and a half years plus since the Brexit vote has been this desperate effort on the part of the British left and, and some of the British kind of liberal left and the radical left to deny any class component to the Brexit vote. Mm. And it seems to me that even though it doesn't map perfectly onto the old class politics, it does have echoes of that. So if you look at any kind of um, statistical analysis of who voted for Brexit, 
the poorer you are, the more likely you are to have a job in manufacturing, the less likely you are to own your own home, the less likely you are to have gone to university. All of those are very good indicators for whether or not you voted for Brexit. So do you think that what we're witnessing is an expression of working class anger with the current makeup of contemporary society and, and public life? even though there are kind of other contributions to Brexit as well. Yeah, I think the Brexit is about power of the state, power of the EU state. People who love the state love the EU because the, the EU just takes it onto a transnational level, which means that we have even less control over the people in the state. Now, if you're a university student doing an art subject and think you're probably going to try and get a job with some one of these organisations to do with the state, then you're obviously going to be very keen on it. But if you're part of the state, you need... The interesting thing about this class I've been talking about, I was wondering why it hasn't got a name. The new class is the nearest I can get to it, but why does it not have a name? And I realised that it can't admit to itself or us that it exists. Because its excuse for regulating us is that it's doing it in all of our interests. Its excuse for taxing us is because that's in all of our interests. It cannot possibly admit that it has a distinct set of interests of its own. It can't admit that actually it craves more power, that it needs to regulate in order to justify its existence. It needs problems, whether it's obesity or climate or whatever else, in order to justify more committees, more research groups and more departments. Um, It has to be there for all of us. It's got to be the universal class, you know, as Hegel Hegel would call it. And so it's got to deny that it's really a social class in the same sense. Even Marxists who, as we know, are terribly good at talking about class, refuse to accept that it They've got a blind spot whether, despite the fact that actually Marxists are part of that class, oddly enough, they're academics and they're so on and so forth. But what we're seeing is ordinary working class people not buying into this idea that the state is in their interests, that a big, powerful state is in their interests. And this is very galling. If you're, you know, a middle class student who is very pro-state and you've joined momentum, I mean, apart from the fact that around you there are no workers, there are just other middle class yeah. students who are hoping to have jobs in the public sector or, or Greenpeace or, or the English National Opera, you know, to have the workers sort of sticking two fingers up at you, that's a bit <laughs> awkward because you're kind of supposed to be doing it on behalf of the workers. <laughs> so if the workers are rejecting the idea of this vast redistributive state that's going to look after them and keep those evil, you know, dirty big capitalists in check. Of course, they can see that the big capitalists like the CBI are entirely in cahoots with the state as it happens. But, you know, that's a problem for them because the state is meant to be there to... We could contain freedom on behalf of of, you know, the poor oppressed masses. Well, the poor oppressed masses aren't buying that. That's a problem. I think that's absolutely right about the inability or the unwillingness of the new class to define, even to define itself as any kind of class. And it kind of is in a state of constant denial about its own existence to such an extent that anyone who talks about the political class or the political elite can these days find themselves accused of being a conspiracy theorist or even worse, far right fascistic you know mm-hmm. who talks about the elites mm-hmm. you know the the kind of um decrepit bourgeoisie apart from people on the far right that's mm-hmm. the argument we've heard from many kind of which Remainers. is ironic given that the fascist state was of course a large bureaucratic state run by the new class that's right absolutely so th- so that's interesting and i think it speaks to the kind of cult of technocracy where they almost have to deny their own self-interest deny any suggestion that they are a, a contained, definable elite of people with particular interests because their entire political worldview is one that is 
post-politics. It's about managerialism. It's about overseeing society. It's about making sure things carry on as they are. And yet they're incredibly coherent as a class. I mean, they're enormously coherent. You can spot them a mile off. You can tell what their views are going to be long before they open their gobs. Um, and for, you know, if they have a son or a daughter, you know, if you're a lecturer in French studies or whatever else, and you have a son or a daughter who decides to become a postman or something, oh my yeah, God, absolutely. not a postman, because that might be you know, connected with the state, but, you know, if, you know uh, uh, something in the private sector, making biscuits for United Biscuits, you know, it's, it's the shock. Yeah. Galbraith, J.K. O'Brien talked about this, you know, because of the betrayal, you have exited the new class. You know, they, they, they regard that as a terrible crime. They're very conscious of themselves on that level, culturally, as a class. The more I think about it, the more I think that they are more conscious of themselves as a class than even kind of late 20th century ruling class was. Because, and I think that's partly down to the fact that they are under pressure. So they're under pressure from the Brexit vote. They're under pressure from the Gilets jaunes in France. They're under pressure from the rise of populist movements across Europe, which does force them to confront their own existence and to confront the the reality of the fact that they believe they should govern society in this uh, supposedly neutral managerial way rather than the ugly masses, the stupid masses, the kind of low-information plebs. That is one th- glorious thing, actually, that we don't say often enough to have come out of the whole Brexit thing. I mean, leaving EU or not leaving you aside, the fact that over, over the course of the past two, three years, we have become, a lot more people have become so much more conscious of that divide and the sheer snobbery of those people, mm-hmm. and the way in which the EU is a way of denying ordinary people power over their own lives, and the disdain for yeah. which they regard ordinary people. I mean, they're scum, these people. Yeah. Um, that has been a delight to behold, because I think that has that has been a terrific advance, if you like, in our consciousness of the real relationships in society. Well, that's actually what I was going to ask you about that kind of visceral snobbery and elitism and uh, the kind of ugly commentary that we've seen over the past two and a half years, not only in relation to Brexit voters and the British public, but also in relation to various European publics in Germany, in France and across the continent, in fact. And I wanted to ask you, because even someone like me, who who's never been a fan of the political class and has always considered that, you know, underneath the surface of their focus groups and their attempts to engage and their, you know, their desperation to connect with the public, which has existed for 10 or 20 years now. In the third way era, there was always that kind of compensatory desire to have focus groups to give the pretense of Mm. democratic engagement. Even I, who thought that that was never very convincing, um, even I've been shocked by the outpouring of elitist contempt for ordinary people that we've seen over the past couple of years. I wanted to ask you, to what extent do you think this is something new and this is a panicked political class responding to a genuine political confrontation? And how much do you think it might actually be a continuation of the kind of elitism that has existed for as long as politics itself has existed? So do you see it as a a very new expression of contempt or do you think it kind of contains echoes of the contempt of the past? I think there's been a long history of what you might call um, posh anti-capitalism, of the landed elite in, in Europe being very worried about new industrialization because what happened was sort of the oiks were getting above themselves, the happy little peasants were leaving the farms and were going to cities for more freedom and more money. And this get, you get the origins of environmentalism with this as well in the Vocus movement in Germany where, you know, a traditional society, feudal society in Germany is interesting because, as with the rest of Europe, um, and unlike Britain, 
uh, the state moves in to kind of prop up feudal relationships. And so the state grows from a very early stage in the military bureaucratic state in Germany um, and establishes itself with the Junkers in the, in the countryside and so on and so, so forth. When serfdom finally collapses in Germany in the, in the first half of the, of the 19th century, finally by the middle half of the 19th century, precisely this starts to happen. Happy smiling peasants and what have you go to the towns German industry takes off, you know, the railways, this so on and so forth. And this awful, wicked new capitalism threatens the old existing hierarchies and social structure. And so you have Bismarck and all that ruling class loathing what, what they perceive to be Jewish um, capitalism, you know, and it's, a, and it's a threat to them. And you, yeah, it's similar in, the, in, 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 in Britain in a way. In terms of the intelligentsia, you have... Schools in Britain at the same time were, if you're posh, you will not go to do a commercial subject or a useful subject. That's down there. You know, you want to do the classics. It is a feature of the intelligentsia that they crave subjects that don't have any practical commercial application because that's, it's an act of snobbery. They want to be up there and, and they embrace the state. They are the state. And so you have this posh state which consists of an intellectual elite that defines itself against capitalism, but is not on the side of the workers. Mm. You know the history of, I mean, the webs, you know, who look mm. down on vulgar commercial, I mean, the, the socialism of the Bloomsbury group. They can't abide the workers. <laughs> They're so far on their own ass. <laughs> and the labour elite, I think there's been this strange alliance between the intellectual labour knobs and the trade union leaders, because obviously that was a, a, an alliance they had to had to forge to make power. And there's always been a bit of a bit of a jar there. So you yeah. have, you know, um, Prescott with his two jags, you know, he's not <laughs> he's not terribly environmental. <laughs> he just wants a bit of cash. <laughs> but there's always, I think, been this snobbish line in uh, socialism yeah. and, and statism. And the delight is that that is uh, the mask is slipping. Yeah. It's, it's interesting that you mentioned the webs and the kind of, you know, looking back at that history of kind of socialism, which was just full of contempt, in fact, for the underclass and poorer people and stupid people and people who should be eugenicized out of existence, preferably. Mm, but it's always been an element of that. But And it's interesting you mentioned that because I often think that, and this is actually a scary thought rather than a good thought, but I often think that what we're currently living through, which is this incredibly rash, visceral elitist reaction against not only the demos but the entire idea of democracy you know why on earth did we entrust these idiots with the decision about the european union you know you can hear mm. that in every single thing that they say mm. so i wonder to, to what extent do you think because if you think historically back to 1928 which is of course the year in which everyone gets the right to vote including women under the age of 30 so it's kind of a very important year you think back and you think okay actually this democratic thing has been a very short idea. It hasn't existed for a very long period of time. There are people still alive now who would have been alive back when everyone got the vote. Do you think in this kind of incredible, incredibly hostile response to the way people voted in June 2016, we're witnessing not just a kind of a response to a particular vote, but also a calling into question of the very idea of modern democracy and the idea that ordinary, not sometimes not particularly well-educated people should be entrusted with making big political decisions? Well, I think it's quite forked-tongued in a way because I think that 
there was an increasing amount of individual freedom in Britain even before the extension of the franchise, which they didn't like. Yeah. I think it's more a dislike of ordinary people enjoying freedom generally over their own lives and not being taxed and regulated by them. The use of the term democracy is a slippery one because they will often use it for instead of the state. Yeah. So instead of state control of the economy, they will talk about democratic control over the economy. And so they will use the term in a way in that context, actually to enhance their own power over the lives of ordinary people. They'll say democratic accountability of companies. And really what they'll mean yeah. is state control of economies by them because they run the state. Really, their power is enhanced at the expense of ours. But what they would like to give the impression of is that they are exercising power on our behalf. And so the more power they have, then in a sense, the more power we have. And so they will try to, you know, as I say, co-opt this term democracy. But in, in a sense, you know, they regard themselves as bosses of, and they, of course, they are blood-sucking on the demos. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think one of the things that excites me most about the Brexit era is the inability of them to continue to co-opt the word democracy. Because I think so much has happened over the past two and a half years and so much anti-democratic sentiment has been expressed that their ability to describe anything as democratic is just going to ring quite hollow. Mm. But I think the, the, the co-option of the phrase democratic to mean, in fact, state control is really best expressed by Jeremy Corbyn's proposal of democratic control of the media, which oh, basically means passing new laws or holding new focus groups or whatever else it might be to mm. um, justify kind of new forms of intervention into media life and, and into the press. But I wonder if, because you talk about the existence or the enjoyment of individual freedoms prior to the democratic era, so prior to all those great new forms of legislation which enfranchised working men and then women and so on, and, and that's completely true. I wonder if, do you see, as, as some libertarians do, and as we know you're a shameless libertarian, <laughs> do you consider there to be a, a contradiction between the value of individual liberty and the value of democracy? Because I find myself increasingly clashing with um, libertarians, particularly libertarians on the right, on this question, where they argue that the problem with democracy is that it threatens to override the right of individuals to engage in everyday life as they see fit. And then, of course, from the left, you have the argument that the problem with individual freedom is that it creates a dog-eat-dog -dog world in which people don't consider issues of social solidarity and community solidarity and so on. And I find myself thinking that both sides are missing a trick and that, in fact, that individual freedom, the right of individual sovereignty, actually complements the idea of democracy pretty well because the more self-governing individuals are, the more likely they are to want to engage in society in a substantial way. I think that, in a way, it sort of depends on the size of the state. You know, if the state isn't very powerful and isn't very intrusive and isn't all over us, in a sense, you're um, less concerned with who's in power in the state because the state doesn't matter very much. Mm. I mean, the state didn't matter very much in Britain in the 19th century, unless you're uh, unfortunate enough to be in the empire. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, you know, if you're in America in the Wild West in the, in the middle part of the century, the state barely has any impact on you whatsoever. So you probably haven't got much engagement in voting for who because you don't care. In Switzerland, they've got really quite tight controls on what politicians are allowed to do. And as a result, a lot of um, 
Swiss don't know who the hell is in charge because mm. they haven't got any very very much power. I don't know who my MEP is, and lots of people don't. It's because we know the MEPs haven't got any really power, so yeah. who cares who they are? Yeah. And I think, in a way, individual freedom has got much more scope uh, for free expression when the state is small. Obviously, you want democratic controls over the state, but I think the ideal, I would argue, is is not to have too much state. Mm. You're listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. If you like this podcast and Spike's other podcasts, and also the articles and essays that Spike publishes every day, please think about giving us a donation. Spike's content is free, and we want to keep it free, and donations really help us to do that. Head over to Spike's donation page now at www.spiked-online.com. I want to just touch again on something you raised about the new Marxists who, whether they are willing to admit it or, or not, are part of the project that we consider to be fairly problematic, which is state-driven, pro-EU, and so on and so forth. And one thing that I think is very interesting is the way in which the meltdown that has been caused in the British left by the vote for Brexit, which I think is fascinating and interesting and probably very fruitful too. And I think what we what we have in Britain at the moment is almost like there are two revolts. There's the real revolt, which is the Brexit revolt, which is very clearly a ballot box revolt. It's very clearly a defiant, disobedient stab for greater self-control and greater democratic control. And then on the other side, you have what we might call the phony revolt, which is the revolt of Corbynism, which is largely, you know, middle-class socialists and trustafarians and people who frequent Glastonbury every year coming together around a project that feels outdated and a bit stale and so on. So would you go so far as to argue that the Corbynistas, as they sometimes refer to themselves as Marxists, I think that's a very unconvincing title, would you go so, so far as to argue that they are part of the establishment project and part of that establishment project in particular of pushing back against what we might consider to be a genuine uprising among ordinary people? Yes. Although Corbyn isn't a crusty old goat, you know, for the most part, his supporters are quite young people yes. and, their, and their students. And it seems to me that students in universities, especially doing arts courses, especially doing non-vocational courses, not so much the ones doing hotel management and things like that, you know, <laughs> so useful bloody things, accountancy, um, but the ones doing anthropology and what have you, they're in training to be members of the new class. Uh, and what we see in their worldview is just the sort of unrefined, rabid, raw um, side of what will later become sophisticated and Blairite and, and so on and so forth. So that's their kind of, they're the kind of shock troops still flush with the zeal of, of statists and they'll refine their message. They'll, they'll learn to couch things a little more carefully as, as they grow older. But, you know, in, in, in the early stages, that's where they are. And I think that what that is all exhibiting, I think you, you, um, one of your articles, you, um, I think you used the term revolt against the masses mm. uh, from a book Fred Siegel wrote, you know, the, that, that great book of that title. And I think in a sense that's what we are seeing. I think we've seen it before, but we're certainly seeing it in, in a particularly kind of naked, aggressive form at the moment. The, mm. You know, the, the EU is a project to contain the masses um, and to feed off them at the same time. Uh, the fact that we have scored such 
an historic uh, victory against them has rattled them. Yes, absolutely. I think that's the key issue of our times, that the scale of the victory that has been scored is kind of confronting them on a daily basis, I have no doubt. You said last year or the year before, I can't remember now, but you said that Brexit has beautifully exposed the gulf between middle-class socialist labour and EU-loathing workers. And I find myself thinking that on a pretty much daily basis at the moment. So how far would you go, just to echo the theme of the discussion so far, how far would you go in describing the vote for Brexit as a working-class revolt? Now, I know it's not it wouldn't only be that because there are so many contributory factors, not least the Tory Shires and the Jacob Rees Mogs of the world and the and the Bojos and so on. There are a number of contributory factors, but how far would you go in describing it at some level as a working class revolt or a workers' revolt against a system that they felt was just not working for them? I think ordinary working class people know that those knobs who have just done a degree in anthropology and who have a copy of Byron in their back pocket are not working for them. They do not regard themselves as part of their gang and and they are working, in fact, against them. And I think they can see that in a number of ways on climate. You know, they do not think when they've got a middle class knob saying we all need to consume less. They know that, hold on a minute, what do you mean consume less? Mm. Somewhere inside them, they know that historically they are consuming more than they've ever consumed before. Why the hell should they be now consuming less? I mean, this is an interesting thing that in the old days, you know, we used to think of socialism as as being on the part of the masses and the aim was to make them richer. We would make them richer. Socialism would outproduce the West and ordinary people would be more free and more wealthy. And then, you know, And I remember selling left-wing papers outside Brixton Tube and, strangely (laughs) enough, not having much traction, except with students. (laughs) But ordinary workers, they kind of knew that... They could see the Soviet Union. They knew about the Soviet Union. They knew about capitalism. Capitalism was a system of mass production. And that goes hands in hands with mass consumption. And they were the mass consumers. And they were rather enjoying it. They were richer. They knew because they knew their parents and their grandparents than ever before. So I swung up and going, oh, this is terrible. (laughs) Now, the the, the (laughs) modern green anti-capitalism sort of accepts that they've lost that argument. We can't say that capitalism is going to cause the immiseration of the masses. Clearly, it has not. Socialism is what you get in Venezuela and North Korea and the Soviet Union. China's a different thing. But nevertheless, they're not going to buy that argument. Moreover, a lot of these new radicals, you know, they're saying the problem we face with climate and so on is overconsumption. Yeah. We're all consuming too much. Actually, their gripe with consumption is a very specific one. They don't really mind consumption in posh cheese shops or rug shops or vintners, or places where they hang out, the nice places like that, they mean Ikea and McDonald's. They mean mass production and consumption by the masses. They don't mind tourism when it's them going to some really fancy out-the-way place. They hate mass tourism. It is the consumption of the masses that offends them so much. Needless to say, that doesn't appeal to the masses that much. You know, the idea, tighten your belt, you shouldn't drive a car, you should drive a bicycle... Don't go to hold it on holiday to Ibiza. Go to a British seaside town mm. in the rain. <laughs> well, I mean, now what is appealing about that? Yeah. So it's quite difficult for them. If in reality their politics are defined against ordinary people, 
They want the money of ordinary people taken in taxes, and they want power over ordinary people in regulation. This agenda is not appealing to ordinary people, no. which, as I say, is a problem for them because the whole damn thing is dressed up as that. Yes, absolutely. And you mentioned the Bloomsbury Marxists earlier on, who, of course, were contemptuous of ordinary people who did go to British seasides. So even then, mass tourism was seen as repugnant mm. because they went to Margate or Bognor Regis and, and apparently left litter all over the place. But I want to come on to Marxism in a bit, because I've got a few questions to ask you in relation to that and this and the supposed new Marxism. But just sticking with the EU, uh, one of the things that struck me about Brexit, the movie, and this was picked up by some of the reviewers, was the lack of focus on immigration. So the Huffington Post review in particular flagged up the fact that, and the reviewer was almost shocked and alarmed, you know, why is there so little commentary on immigration in this pro-Brexit film? And instead mentioned the fact that the arguments were all in relation to economics and trade and uh, democracy in particular. I mean, obviously, the immigration question contributed at some level, even if it was through the democratic issue, the idea that we should have democratic say over the issue of immigration. Obviously, the issue of immigration contributed at some level, but do you think that this kind of depiction of the Brexit vote as this howl of rage against foreigners and against the idea of immigration, you don't you don't buy that? No, not in the least. I think ordinary people in Britain are admirably open-minded and friendly to uh, foreigners. In fact, I remember um, talking to um, Stephen Shakespeare of YouGov and he, he pointed out that if um, any politician said something really nasty about foreigners, it was pretty much political suicide in Britain. Yeah. People would hate it so, so much. And people are incredibly open and friendly to, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm an Arsenal fan. Um, and, you know, you sit the terraces and, you know, they, you know, they don't care. It comes from anywhere. Um, you know, as long as they're really good, good. I love mm. that, um, Mertesacker, the big German defender, you know, um, big fucking German. We got a big fucking German. You know, we, you know, that there is that open, I think there's that openness more broadly. I think there are, concerns about immigration, I would tend to put them in two categories, one the economic and one cultural. The economic one, interestingly, nearly all of the bogeys about immigration are in fact based on Keynesian economics. The idea that there's a limited number of jobs, Mm. all of those notions have been posited by the, the left, the trade unions for ages and ages and ages, that the best way to improve your standard of living is to restrict trade not to allow it. It's to restrict entry into uh, uh, jobs and it's at the expense of other workers that you will uh, that you will drive. All of that stuff, oddly enough, really tends to come from the left, yeah. not, from, not from free marketeers who are much more open to things. Culturally, I think that there is, I think, something to talk about and the elephant in the room is Islam. I think for the most part, people can give a, give a bugger about Afro-Caribbeans or people of Afro-Caribbean descent or all sorts of things like that, they are a bit concerned about Islam. And that, insofar as they are, that's condemned outright by the intelligentsia. Mm. They're, they're wrong to even, you know, the very, the very, and that is condemned as racism. And I think that's quite unfair because I think a lot of concerns are, are perfectly legitimate there. And did the left have, you know, to, to give the left credit, you know, pioneered arguments about Gay people, they're not monsters. Uh, women, you know, they should have an equal place in society to everyone and so on and so forth. And then you have Islam come along, you know, puts women in bags and chucks 
gay men blindfolded off the top of buildings. And then if you say, oh, that doesn't look right, you know, yeah. you're condemned. You're an Islamophobe. I agree with that very much. And I think um, one of the problems in relation to the immigration discussion is that it's presumed that people who are concerned about immigration or concerned about Islam must be racist or must be Islamophobic. When in fact, I think it's often a very understandable response to the denigration of the traditional British ways of life or traditional British communities who are seen as being inferior and lazy and stupid, you know, their flags outside their houses or their white vans or whatever the caricatures might be, at the same time as there has been an elevation of the immigrant contribution to Britain, whether it's in terms of bringing diversity, bringing new forms of food, or Islam as this great unquestionable religion in comparison to Christianity, which of course you can mock as as much as you like. I think it's a sim- and there's a similar process going on in America, where yeah. you know a lot of the Democrats they feel that they've, they're losing a lot of white working class votes, and so they're making up for them for creating new little constituencies which they can act in a paternalistic way for, and therefore sort of buy and keep the votes. Yeah, uh, and immigrants you know form part of you know a, a handy new group in that regard. Absolutely, and I so I, I often think that the to the extent that there is concern about immigration, and there unquestionably is. It's very often a response not to the arrival of immigrants, but to the way in which immigration has been politicised and even weaponized by a political class which wants to re-educate the moronic masses and educate them about diversity and the wonderfulness of Islam and all these other things which people quite understandably <laughs> push back against. But also immigration had to be the motive that was imposed on ordinary people. Yes. You know, Because to admit that actually ordinary people just loathe domination by yes. a particular class. That, that can't possibly be That's the right. reason. The fact that they want democracy and, and these sort of scummy working class people, of course, they're disgusting. They tend to have vile views anyway. So, you know, this is just giving them their mm. giving them their head a bit, allowing them to have any say over their own existence in this regard. Yeah. It, it was a part of the demonisation. Absolutely. So just sticking with the EU for one or two more questions. You have said... The EU is totally unaccountable and totally undemocratic. And the whole notion of pooling sovereignty is a, is a lie that's foisted on European populations and it actually ends up denuding them of their democratic power. So how would you explain to your fairly average person, average is a terrible word, but you know what I mean, how would yeah. you explain to a Ramona and try and make them see that the European Union is not the kind of liberal democratic institution that they think it is, but actually is an unaccountable, increasingly monstrous organisation? Well, I mean, it's very obviously not democratic. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's an organisation that no one understands. You don't, I don't, politicians don't, political journalists don't. Many people in the EU don't know how the European Council fits in with the Council of Europe, fits in with the Council of the European Union, blah, 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 blah. Where the power lies, we obviously didn't elect. Did you, you know, vote for Juncker and vote for Juncker? We don't even know who were, and they say, oh, but someone, some elected politician voted for Young. Who? Who's the elected politician? Mm. For, and are they up for election soon? And can we vote them out because they voted for Juncker? By the time it becomes sufficiently indirect, there is no realistic democracy at all. And even if the European Parliament had power, which it doesn't, by the way, you know, if you and your uh, collective group, and by that I mean a sort of nation, a cultural nation, only has 8% of the votes then that's meaningless anyway, even if the European Parliament had power. 
The thing is, real democracy works because an issue comes up and then people discuss it in the pub. It's on, you know, it's on Nick Ferrari, on LBC. It's in the sun. It's on. People are debating it and people, are, and we know who's in charge. We know mm. who can be voted out. But generally, there is a kind of national conversation about it. There's a debate. If something comes up to the EU, of course, we don't, I mean, hey, we don't know about it. Even if we did, how do we have any kind yeah. of debate on a chat show with someone from Romania or Spain or, <laughs> or, or Germany? You know, we just, there is no cultural connection with them. And so because they've divided us linguistically, culturally and everything else, we don't stand a chance. We haven't elected them. We don't know who did elect them. We don't know how the machine works. We have no control over it. It is not democratic. And the thing is, if you ask an American, if you said, look, I put it to you, do you want to be part of a transnational super state, which you don't understand, run by people you don't know and who you didn't elect and who you can't get rid of, but who have the power to impose on you laws that you haven't discussed and have little or no realistic power to block or rescind. Was that a good idea? I mean, they would, they'd reach for their guns. <laughs> That's what the Second Amendment is for. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Second Amendment is for things like the EU. Yeah. But what's depressing, listening to you say that, and I agree with every word you've said, what I find depressing is that those arguments used to be made by people who were on the left side of British politics. Now, this is not to fetishise the left or to demonise the right. I think those terms are increasingly unhelpful in terms of defining where people are at and where people stand. Especially and if you're accused of being on the right. Exactly. <laughs> and, it, and it kind of, it's like using a 20th century map to guide your way through a very 21st century world. So it doesn't add up. But when you think back to Tony Benn and Barbara Castle and, and Michael Foote and, you know, Barbara Castle in particular, who came up with the phrase Euro jingoism to describe the way in which the, the emerging European institutions wanted to keep power and uh, trading power in particular for themselves, you can't help but feel a sense of loss. And you see you in the current period, you have Jeremy Corbyn, who was Tony Benn's bag carrier, now betraying all of that. And not only betraying it to himself by, um, you know, campaigning for Remain, but also more importantly, betraying it for this new audience that he has. And that does feel like possibly one of the worst things that the kind of mainstream socialist left in this country has done. I partly agree, although I've, I've come to the conclusion that it's wrong to suppose that somehow there were this lovely left in the past, yeah. like Tony Benn. Yeah. He, was a, he could be a nasty bit of work. Yeah, and he did sure. you know, live in a very nice house in Holland. I interviewed him once. He lived in a very big house in Holland Park. <laughs> I think his estate was worth you know, quite a few million pounds. Sort of when he, I think it was in the papers today. And... The idea that there was a good left and now there's a bad left. Because, you know, the good left from before, I think, you know, actually were guilty of a lot of things that we were talking about earlier. Um, you know, in the immediate post-war period, the Labour government that everyone goes on about, oh, good old Clem Attlee, and there's this lovely glow around them, you know. They passed a law that you had to apply to the government to change jobs. It was against the law if you were an adult male or female between the ages of, I don't know what it was, 20 and 55. You had to apply to the Ministry of Labour for permission to change jobs. You know, we used to argue on the left for, you know, the liberation and enrichment of the masses. It, yeah. The old left didn't deliver that either. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think actually it's testament to the continuing downward spiral off the 21st century Labour left that people like Tony Benn and, and even Michael Foote, who was worse than Tony Benn, can seem like 
heroic figures. And, you know, I, I'm fascinated by the way in which um, you even have right-wing Brexiteers who share Tony Benn Tony ben memes and videos because they're like, wow, a Labour person <laughs> used to say the EU was anti-democratic? Well, there wasn't much good about the Labour, at least you said the EU. That, exactly. <laughs> so speaking of the liberation of the masses, I want to move on to the question of environmentalism, which is something you are known for and infamous for uh, in terms of, you know, daring, having the temerity to criticise the politics of environmentalism, which is a big no-no these days. You made a film called Against Nature, which was hugely controversial in the 1990s. You made a film called The Global Warming Swindle, which, as its title would attest, was also incredibly controversial. One of the arguments you have made, and this taps into the discussion we've just had, is that the problem with a lot of this stuff, well, firstly, there's the issue of the science, which we can come on to in a second. But there's the broader question of the anti-capitalist nature of this stuff and the fact that it's not anti-capitalism as we might have known it in the past, which was, um, you know, a Marxist view that we could move towards a society which produced even more than capitalist society was capable of producing and would have would create the conditions for even more consumption than we than we currently enjoy, but instead is a, a form of anti-capitalism which is about reining in, winding back, tightening belts, shriveling up people's kind of aspirations. Do you still see environmentalism as as playing that kind of role? Uh, yes, no, it is entirely a philosophy of restraint of the freedom and the prosperity of ordinary people, and by. The new class, the very same class. I think it's a parallel, uh, global warming is a parallel issue to Brexit. And it's no mistake that the sort of people who will hate the EU are all also more likely to be sceptical about climate yes. change. And the people who, you know, go a bundle on polar bears will also be pro-EU. You know, it's a class issue in that respect. And it's interesting that you make that that connection, which I would too. Uh, and I think the Gilets jaunes actually speak to that pretty well, because it starts off as a as a mass protest against a green tax on fuel and then quite naturally morphs into a much larger protest against Macron and the European Union and people calling for Frexit and, and everything else. But one of the things that's striking about the films you made was um, the response to them. So the response to Against Nature, the response to the great global warming swindle, the, the way in which people, I guess like George Monbiot is the obvious example, the way in which they conceive of you is as a climate change denier. Uh, and you, that brand, which is attached to anyone who criticises any aspect of the politics of environmentalism. But it's in this country, I think it's probably been attached to you perhaps more <laughs> than almost anyone else. So it's a great pride. <laughs> <laughs> With great, and you should be enormously proud of that. But what do you think is the driver behind that kind of rash response to anyone who criticises environmentalism? I can never quite work out if it's driven by this kind of a sense of moral certitude or by the entire opposite, by this sense of intellectual vacuousness and this fear that they'll be found out for promoting an ideology which actually doesn't stack up. I think there's both there. Right. I think there's a kind of nervousness because, you know, their silly predictions have been shown to be wrong <laughs> again and again and again. But at the same time, a kind of totalitarian zeal uh, with which they will stamp out, stamp on anyone whose worldview, you know, who has the balls to stand up and sort of contradict them. Yeah. The interesting thing talking about people, you can go on as much as you like about the science. You can talk about the ice core data, you can talk about the hockey stick data, you can talk about the shenanigans that they've had to cover up the fact that since the 1950s, they've been making predictions that have 
all been shown to be complete nonsense. First of all, it was global cooling, of course. Then the global warming kicked in and God, all the sorts of things. But no matter how much you point out in the science, the riposte always comes back. Ah, but look at all these in all the experts, because we had this with Brexit as well. The experts are saying yeah. we mustn't leave. Yeah. The expert class, they are united in saying this is true. So no matter what you throw at them in terms of scientific criticism, they will say, uh, well, they've linked arms, they've joined forces. And the interesting thing, I think, in a way, about the climate debate now is not so much the science, because the science is all over the place. It's ridiculous. I mean, they have silly claims every which way um, on the part of people trying to support this a notion of severe human-caused climate change. But the question is, why then is there this consensus? That's the interesting thing. Who are these people? Because they say all these scientists agree. Actually, if you look, if you look at all the scientists, you know, they say 2,000 How many of those scientists are actually meteorologists? Yeah. Of course they're not meteorologists. They're yeah. people who study biology. Why, why, I mean, why would they have any notion about what the bleeding guy... Why does their opinion on the climate yeah. matter more than anybody else's? Yeah. But nevertheless, they're all... And why are they going behind it? They're going behind it. In part, it's money. I mean, you know, there are billions of pounds dedicated to climate uh, research. So if you want a bit of that money, then you've got to, you know, tick the box of believing in climate change. If you say climate change is rubbish, you are not going to, you're yeah. not going to qualify for one of those grants. But, but more broadly and much more importantly is the worldview that this whole argument demands more regulation. It demands more research, more bodies being set up, more power to the new class. It means more taxation. It means less international trade. Interestingly, actually, on those often rather confused discussions about globalisation, I think there's kind of two sorts of globalisation. One is economic globalisation, where very many people are trading and travelling much more freely with the rest of the world. And that's a jolly good thing and should be sort of embraced and celebrated. The other, which they're more, the new class is much more keen on, is globalisation of politics, yeah. the, the extension of power by supranational political bodies, which is aimed at actually stamping out the kinds of freedoms we're talking about. And so the global warmers will be very keen on the EU. They'll be very keen on those sort of supranational organisations and the UN and those big sort of global political bodies, but they hate free trade. Mm. They hate free world mm. trade. They hate uh, uh, so on and so forth. So, Absolutely, because I wanted to come on to that. And, and just to add to your list of things that they've been completely wrong about, of course, there's acid rain, the whole ozone layer stuff, which people were obsessed with when I was at school and you don't really hear much about that anymore. Hmm. The population explosion and so on. Greens have been wrong about everything for, I guess you could say 200 years. If you go right back to Malthus and, and the idea that there wouldn't be enough stuff in the world to feed, feed the growing number of people. But I, I wanted to um, touch on, because one of the things I, I admire most about your kind of dogged critique of the politics of environmentalism is that one of the points you make, which I think does distinguish you from people like James Delampole, who I like, of course, and um, everyone does, and um, other people who, who, who use terms like watermelon. So they argue that the great problem with environmentalism is that it's green on the outside, but red on the inside. So basically, it's a way of kind of bringing in radical communistic ideas under the cover of saving the planet. But one of the arguments you've made is that environmentalism is in fact a form of romanticism. So it's anti-capitalist because romanticism tends to be anti-capitalist, but that doesn't mean it's Marxist in the way that we traditionally would have understand, understood Marxism, which was about 
moving forward, not backwards. It was about growing, not restraint, which was a, which in fact, if you read Marx and Engels communist manifesto, the first 10 or 12 pages are devoted to praising the achievements of the new bourgeoisie, in particular free trade and the way in which it kind of broke down backward tribal <laughs> habits and, and other things, which would be utterly un-PC to say these days. That's, I think, one of the valuable things about your critique, which is that environmentalism is might be more pronounced on the left than it is on the right, perhaps, but it isn't left as we would have understood it 150 yeah, years ago. What used to be called right-wing anti-capitalism. Yeah. Mm. And so do you think that the leftists who promote the environmentalist idea are just detached from the history of the left? What What is it that's pushing them to, to promote this? Of their members of the new class. Right. They are, they are, they, they instinctively know that this is going to lead to more government funding. They're mixing with people who would also like more funding of the arts. You know, they are, it's, it's, it, you know, they instinctively know that they're part of that club. Yeah. And that club is against, you know, the oiks. Yes. You're listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. Subscribe now so that you never miss an episode. And it would be great if you could give us a rating and maybe even a review. That is a really good way to help new listeners discover the show. It seems to me, and I could be misreading this, but it does seem to me that the great global warming scare, I mean, it was never very high up on ordinary people's lists of concerns. It was always the new class that was obsessed with it. And most people were kind of more interested in work and making ends meet and having a free, good, interesting life. But it seems to me that one of the benefits, perhaps another one of the benefits of the kind of populist revolts that we're currently living through across the Western world in many ways, is that it has forced more substantial issues to the top of the agenda the question of democracy, the question of sovereignty, the question of trade, the question of who rules and why they rule and where they get their right to rule. Do you feel, I mean, for example, would you make Against Nature now? Would you make the great global warming swindle now? Or do you think there are other other more pressing issues, which means that perhaps, thankfully, the environmentalist thing has been shunted down a little bit? Well, most of the programmes that my company makes is actually for the masses. Mm. We make programs for taxi drivers <laughs> <laughs> and and Trump supporters in America and people like that. You know, that's the mass market for TV. Yeah. That's right. This other thing really is sort of it's the passion side, the more controversial films. And the odd thing is those sorts of think films tend to be watched by people in the new class anyway. So I'm pissing yeah. off nearly everyone who watches it. <laughs> Most people have too much sense to even bother about thinking about it. I mean, the interesting thing, you know, if you talk about genetic modification or something like that, mm. I remember at the time this lovely uh, uh, working-class woman that was uh, uh, down the street. I say working-class, like, of course, I'm, I'm not at all now anymore. So, but you know what I mean, <laughs> uh, ordinary Joe, and saying, um, what do you think about genetic modification? Are you worried about genetically modified food? And she looked at me as if I was from Mars. You know, <laughs> what are you on about? And likewise with, with climate change, you know, it's not that you've got to make an argument about the science. They just don't care. Yeah. They know it's nothing to do with them. They're not interested. It's not part of their lives. They don't buy the scare stories one little bit. It's nothing to do with them. So in a sense, the uh, 
the more political controversial films I make are mainly for your consumption. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm very pleased that you do they that. They certainly don't pay. But I think that um, I'm, I'm slightly... I'm, they're part of the same issue. I'm very keen on sort of hammering this home. I've got to be in my bonnet about uh, ordinary people, how wise they are, how decent they are, how free they should be. Yeah. Um, so uh, nearly every film I make is connected with, with that in some way. Yeah. Um, I'm working on two at the moment, uh, still the early stages, but one about mainly for the American... For American cinematic release, one on guns and the other on race. Brilliant. Those are good values to make films around and, in fact, to organise politics and and um, intervention into politics around, which is, you know, the wisdom of crowds, the rights of crowds, the ability of ordinary people to think for themselves and to decide for themselves, which I think in many ways is the, is the great cause of our time. And nobody I know from, you know, my background, which is a kind of Irish immigrant working class background. No one ever talks about climate change. I've never heard a single person from that part of my life ever mention the words climate change, ever. And then you go into media circles or political circles and people want to kind of beat you over the head with this huge, profound concern. Um, We're worried about the GGs. (laughs) Yeah, that's right, the GGs, which is a far more interesting and exciting (laughs) issue. Okay, before we wrap up, I want to ask you about Thatcher. Margaret Thatcher who you admire, I believe, or certainly you think she's a revolutionary figure, which is quite counterintuitive. So in relation to what we've been talking about, which is the new class and this kind of new elite, I guess, which is pressing down on the masses and the masses are now thankfully pressing back up. Would I be right in saying that you would consider Thatcher to have not have been a member of that new class? And, and if you do... Do you do you appreciate that a lot of people would think that the suggestion that she was a revolutionary rather than a kind of elite figure is, would be quite unusual? I think she was the scourge of the new class in many <laughs> ways, which is why they absolutely hate her. I was conscious when I was making the uh, other film on Thatcher, which is a big a sort of feature-length obituary of Channel 4, that at, a, at nice polite dinner parties in Hackney or Islington or, or, or Hampstead, they didn't have a good word mm-hmm. to say about that. But we're having a, a kitchen done at the time. The builders loved Thatcher. Yeah. <laughs> Taxi drivers loved Thatcher. Yeah. You know, how was it that ordinary people love Thatcher and the intelligentsia completely loathe her? Um, and you look back and you see that, you know, all her values were those of respectable, socially ambitious, ordinary people who want to uh, get on. Um, and, you know, what, I mean, what she did with the universities, you know, making polytechnics, kids call themselves universities. That's so appalling. <laughs> <laughs> Snobs at Oxford and Cambridge and all the rest of it. She didn't give a damn about all of that. You know, she was properly a grocer's daughter. So she didn't fit terribly well with the old paternalist posh Tory party either. I think your revisionist take on Thatcher is is fascinating. I mean, the thing that the reason that she has a lot of standing in in my family is because, of course, the other thing she did, not only did she make polytechnics into universities, but she also allowed council estate tenants to buy their homes, which, mm. I mean, the number of kind of upper middle class leftists I've met who think that's the most outrageous thing you could ever have done always makes me laugh. That's what my parents did. They bought their council estate home courtesy of Thatcher. But I think... Thatcher is very interesting in relation to all the things we've just been talking about because she obviously ran this country. She was the Iron Lady. She had a great propensity to authoritarianism. She confronted working class institutions like trade unions in a way that was quite unforgiving at times. But what's fascinating about her rule is that precisely as you say, which is that the new class, 
has not a single good word to say about her, whereas other sections of society often do. One of the things I think is important about the Thatcher era in relation to today is that a lot of the anti-populist sentiment that is now quite pronounced on the left, including on the supposedly radical left, actually really takes form in the Thatcher era. So if you look at the whole kind of Marxism today view of Thatcherism, which is that it was this populist ideology which hoodwinked the masses and convinced them that, you know, their kind of... Huge working class support. Huge working class support Mm. and really kind of crystallised the shift of working-class voters away from Labour towards the Tories. So that's why they hated her so much. But I think tying the Thatcher era to the kind of Brexit era, I think what's fascinating is that it's really the moment at which the left becomes anti-populist and as a consequence increasingly anti-people, anti-masses and possibly anti-democratic. So do you see a link between the events of the Thatcher era and the kind of current Brexit climate we're living in. Yeah, and it's entirely predictable and obvious that Thatcher was going to be against the EU because she was in favour of ordinary people standing on their own two feet. I mean, the reason why a lot of working class people liked her is that, you know, in the post-war years, uh, and I lived in South Shields, Irish, you know, emigrate, the same old working class. <laughs> um, and those communities, you, you grew up in a council house. The job was often provided by the state. You were expected, you know, the state run this, the state ran that, the state ran, you know, and there was a feeling of, and you were in a working class community. You know, the, the emphasis is on preserving working class job, preserving working class culture, prefer, keeping you where you were. And working class people wanted their bands to have a nice, you know, a, a semi-detached house somewhere mm. nice. They wanted them to have a car. They wanted to get on. They thought, oh, my goodness, you know, so-and-so started a little company. Do you know, oh, so-and-so's getting on there. So they were ambitious to, to get on and improve, not stay put. But, of course, staying put was kind of, they are the base of the, the new class paternalism. So they're kind of, they're kind of needed down there. <laughs> and Thatcher was saying, do you know what, I'm going to set you free. And so there was this new class disdain for working class van drivers who read The Sun and, you know, thought Thatcher was a good thing. But for ordinary people, I mean, look at what she did to the city. Blew it wide open. You suddenly had Barrow Boys from Walthamstow going in and making, you know, huge money. And the, the old Tories didn't like that very much. You know, she was blowing the blowing the thing open. And her own background, it was the same with them. Ronald Reagan, her own background was, you know, actually, you know, very poor. I mean, they eventually ended up owning a shop, but, you know, he'd started, you know, the bottom of her father. Um, and likewise with Ronald Reagan, you know, came up from Iceberg and they knew working class aspirations. And that was to get a bit of money and have freedom. And, you know, it's not changed. You know, we started, I started on the left thinking it was about the liberation of ordinary people and the enrichment of ordinary people. It still is. Mm-hmm. It just happens that those people who are, who are claiming to have that mantle, you know, we need to bring them down. Martin Durkin, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.